Moncrief on News Talk. Now, pardon the self-indulgence, but today is World Radio Day and Ireland played a significant role in the development of radio. Eddie Bohan is a radio historian. Afternoon, Eddie. Good afternoon, Sean. How are you? Uh, so even if we go back to the invention of radio, there's a huge Irish input into that. It, se- it seems like there's a lot of um, uh, Irish clergymen had something to do with the invention of radio. Well, yeah. Um, Father Nicholas Callan, who is at uh, Maynooth, um, he invented what was known as the induction coil. And without the induction coil, Marconi couldn't have uh, put together his transmitter system. So, I mean, there was a lot of uh, early inventors in uh, Father O'Flanagan as well. Uh, Father O'Reilly, who was from Cavan, um, he was one of the first early experimenters. And he was one of the first experimenters to demonstrate wireless at a university in New York. Really? And Marconi himself, uh, a, a lot of people might not know his mother was Irish. His mother was. Uh, she was Annie Jemison of the Jemison Distilling family, uh, originally born in Enniscorthy. Um, and her home uh, was um, the what is now the, the very fancy house on Montrose site of RTE. Oh. Uh, that's where they live. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and like, did Marconi get, uh, did, Marconi did spend some time in Ireland and, and did he get like Irish backing? He, he did. When he came to London first and he demonstrated wireless in London, he didn't get the reaction he had expected because he needed, of course, usual cash to try and push his invention. So through the Jemison family, he came to Dublin and he ended up at the Goodbody family home in Clara in County Offaly. And they had a large flour mills and granary business down there. He demonstrated his wireless invention to them at their house in Clara. They were fascinated by it and thought they could use it. So the first commercial use of the wireless was in Clara, where they set up a transmitter at their flour mills and a receiving station at their uh, bag-making factory. So they weren't to over-produce bags, they just produce bags as they needed them because they were able to communicate between the two sites. Ah, and in 1916 as well, radio played a role in that. It did in 1916. Uh, the rebels, uh, knowing that the British would stifle any kind of communications in and out of Ireland, um, uh, Plunkett himself was a Marconi expert. And they knew there was a, a closed wireless schools. The wireless schools had been closed because of the First World War, uh, part of the defence defense of the Realm Act. Uh, but they knew there was a defunct station up on the fourth floor, what was known as Reese's Chambers, which is day, today the Grand Central Bar in O'Connell Street. And in 1916, on Easter Monday, they went up, uh, reconnected the transmitter and began transmitting communiques written by Pierce, Plunkett and Connolly. So we became the first nation in the world to be actually declared by radio. That's so interesting. Now, uh, uh, RTE wasn't our first radio station. It was called, uh, it was 2BP. Uh, uh, How did that come about? So that was, um, again, this is just, uh, radio kind of stifled because of the War of Independence and the Civil War. So once the Civil War was over, there was a lot of clamouring to get our own radio station. Uh, in 1924, 2BP, 2BE was to open in Belfast, so just, you know, we, we went on our own station. Uh, so the Postmaster General at the time, J.J. Walsh, gave Marconi a licence to open a station for the duration of the Horse Show Week in 1923, in August 1923. So they set up a station uh, with studios in the Royal Marine Hotel in Dunleary and receiving station in the RDS, but it was receiving stations all over Dublin. A lot of the wireless manufacturers were trying to sell sets, so they had their open days. There was reportedly 2,500 people in Henry Street outside Hogan's listening to these broadcasts. 
So uh, um, identification was 2BP. So I went on the air for three days. Uh, it was supposed to be on the air for a week, uh, but the Irish government, in the middle of a general election campaign, suddenly realised the power of radio and immediately um, cut their licence. So we're on, <laughs> on the air for, instead of a week, only for three days. <laughs> first date sen- never change. Yeah, first date censorship as well. Now, yeah, th- absolutely, yeah. So it, uh, so it was a, there was a gap of a few years then before RTE came along. Yeah, so the, the discussion then within um, government and commercial sectors was the Postmaster General at the time, J.J. Walsh, because he has taken over this brand new business, the Post Office, which was, uh, you know, taken over from the British, uh, he didn't really want to have anything to do with wireless. So his first thought was to make it a commercial station. So he put out uh, a request in 1924 for anybody who'd be interested in running a commercial venture in Ireland to come forward. And a number of manufacturers came in. Manufacturers were big trying to sell sets. Uh, so he put all these manufacturers together, called themselves the Irish Broadcasting Company. So it, originally the license was supposed to be commercial, but then there was a lot of controversial uh, controversy. A man who is in charge of one of the men involved in the Irish Broadcasting Company was a man called Daryl Figgis. He was a TD, an independent TD. He had been the man behind the whole gun running at one stage with Erskine Childers. And he became involved with a man called Andrew Belton. And Belton seemingly... Well, he, Belton said he had given money to Figgis' campaigns, which was illegal. Uh, it blew up in the Dáil, and there was a wireless committee. Figgis had to resign. And in 1924, his wife, Emily, uh, committed suicide uh, over the attention she was getting. It had a negative impact on her. Her husband had been attacked in his home. God. And now Figgis himself... Uh, sort of retired from politics after the death of his wife. Um, And then he became involved with an 18-year-old dancer from the Liberties, uh, Rita North. She became pregnant. Uh, They went to London uh, to try and have an abortion. The abortion went wrong. She died. Uh, There was an inquest. He attended the inquest in London. And uh, the day after the inquest uh, result came out, he went back to his lodgings in London and he too committed suicide. Crikey. Yeah, and then it was decided suddenly enough uh, that it would be no longer a commercial entity, that there would be a state-run body, which became 2RN in 1926. Yeah. Now, at, at the time, and like I assume for some years after that, Eddie, like radio, radios were expensive. Did many people have them? Um, not a lot. Again, you have to remember the time, 1920s, 1930s. If you got married, especially perhaps down the country, uh, your house is furnished by your relatives and your neighbours, so your beds, your cooker. But the first piece of actual furniture you went out to buy was the radio set, the wireless. Mm. Uh, so it was an investment. It was expensive uh, because there was, at the time, a 33% uh, tax on it. And then you had to pur- purchase a licence. But a lot of inventive people were able to create crystal sets, cheap crystal sets, which you know they didn't have to declare they bought. So didn't have to buy a license. So in Ireland, you had a lot of people listening to radio. Now, unfortunately for domestic radio, uh, 2RN, when it came on the air, it was only on for three hours from half seven to half ten. So, you know, and they were trying to be everything to everyone, uh, trying to appease everyone, trying to appease the farmers, trying to appease people who wanted to listen to traditional music, people who wanted to listen to dance music, people who wanted speech and news. They even had their own shows in Esperanto because that was, hmm. you know, the coming language of the time. Uh, but, you know, in three hours, you couldn't be all things to all people. So there was a lot of complaints, although it did open up a world 
Um, people in Dublin suddenly heard accents from Cork. I mean, never heard an accent from Cork. They heard yeah. from the wireless. And again, people in Donegal suddenly heard the same piece of music they'd been playing for generations, being played by someone in Cork and going, it's actually the same piece of air, but it's been played wrong because mm. they thought theirs was perfect. But they were hearing this for the first time through the wireless. And that, yeah, I suppose that gave people a sense of the country they lived in uh, uh, as much as anything else, that it was kind of larger than just their uh, immediate yeah. location. So, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So th- then when did they start, when, when did they kind of develop that out into, you know, broadcasting all day? Uh, broadcasting all day didn't really come in until after the Second World War. Really? Uh, they did extend the hours, but again, uh, financial constraints. Uh, up to 1932, they weren't even allowed much advertising. Uh, but then in 1933, they sold airtime. They uh, opened up the Athlone transmitter, so they had a powerful transmitter. Uh, so they opened up airtime to sponsored programs. And one of the first sponsored programs was a man called Leonard Plug. So if you ever want to plug something on the radio, that's where it came from, Leonard ah. Plug. Yeah, he had a station in, in France called Radio Normandy, which was broadcasting into England uh, from France. Uh, music that you know BBC wasn't giving them. So to uh, balance it up and get the other side of uh, down the west coast of Wales and Scotland, he used RTE's airtime to broadcast the programs. Didn't go down too well. He was broadcasting music that wasn't too happy, and that's where the anti-jazz movement came from. Huh. <laughs> that's God. I didn't know any of that. The, yeah, the, contra- uh, controversial uh, times. Controversial times. Even today, though, Eddie, when 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 people, you know, kids are in college uh, doing mm. courses on radio around Europe, they will always kind of point to Ireland as an example because we have still maintained or retained uh, a massive listenership to radio. Why is that? Uh, mainly because we're sort of traditionalists. Um, in Europe, it's it's slightly changing. We'll say the likes of Norway have turned off both their uh, traditional AM and FM transmitters. So everything now is digital in Norway. Uh, some countries are going the same way. Um, but it's still, it's listen. I, I go into schools and, and especially primary schools, and I'd ask the children in the class, you know, who listens to the radio today or yesterday, and not a, probably a handful of hands would go up. And I'd say to them, how did you get to school? And they'd say, well, mum or dad drove us. I says, was the radio on in the car? Yes. So they were actually listening to radio, and they're not really realising it's radio mm-hmm. because it's so natural to them. It's so, they're so used to it. It isn't that awe-inspiring moment of the first time. Uh, but it's, it's it's like over 80% of people list, still listening to traditional, you know, radio as in FM radio. I know there's no AM left in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, but just FM is, is the big one. I mean, there's still, I mean, there's a website, there's a website called radio.ie run by a man called Brian Green. And if you go onto that, you will find over 200 Irish stations. But these are local community stations uh, in a place called Clonmelon and Castle Dermot. They have their own radio stations. And they do a great work for the local community, connecting the local community through the radio. And that's the most important part of radio, is connecting communities through radio. Yeah, well, if it's not self-serving to say it, I hope that uh, maintains for quite some time to, uh, to come. Eddie Bohan is a radio historian. Eddie, thanks a million. You're welcome, Sean. Moncrief, weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.